back to the Forking Wellness Podcast. My name is Sophie, registered nutritionist. And I'm Barry, registered dietitian. And we are here today with Dr. Tara Sport, who needs no introduction, but in case you don't know who she is, she is a neuroscientist, a medic, an author, a professor, and so much more. So welcome. Thank you so much. That I'm a jack of all trades, I think is the truth. Yeah, I think let's do, maybe you should introduce yourself and just let everyone know a little bit more because there's just so much to say. And um, I mean, you have a very impressive background. Thank you so much. Maybe actually the journey is quite interesting in terms of how it's brought me to be speaking with, with both of you. So I, I went to medical school. I did a PhD in neuroscience in the middle of that. Then I um, worked as a psychiatrist for seven years. Um, and then I set up my own business consulting using neuroscience to help people with stress, with emotional intelligence, with mental resilience. Um, then I started speaking more. And then a few people said that I should write a book Um and eventually I got to write the book that I really wanted to, which was more about, absolutely about science and neuroplasticity, but more about the laws of attraction, manifestation, um, vision boards, which I call action boards, and um, that kind of thing. Amazing. You make it sound so easy. You're like, oh, I did this, then this, then that. And it's such a huge, like, impressive journey. Your <laughs> email signature must be insane. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, it's a bit, it is a bit over the top. But I mean, I think what's interesting is that along the way, I met with a lot of um, uh, not challenges, but pushback from people because I kept moving from one thing to another and it didn't make sense to other people. I mean, you know, giving up a medical career doesn't make a lot of sense. But maybe I describe it like that now, because when I look back, there's definitely a thread through that journey. You know, it's about it's always about the brain, how people think, mm. about holistic well-being. Um, so it makes sense to me, and I think it's starting to make more sense to other people if you put it all together in that journey. Yeah. What got you so interested in neuroscience in the first place? Um, it's just one of those things. I mean, when you first go to medical school, it's so overwhelming thinking about what you'll specialise in. And so I started by having a very definite list of things I never wanted to do, um, like surgery, and then starting to like, you know, narrow that down into, okay, of the things that I like, like, what do I like the most? And in the third year, you get to sort of choose special topics. And without really thinking about it consciously, I chose neuroanatomy, neuropharmacology, the biology of aging, the pharmacology of drug dependence, you know, all very brain and you know, ageing sort of, and you know, lifestyle sort of centred topics. And I think so my love of it just started then. I just found the neuro aspect of everything totally fascinating. It could have been cardio, it could have been gastro, but for me, it was neuro. Yeah, amazing. And growing up, was that something that you were super fascinated with, like the brain and, you know, longevity and things? Did that play a role in kind of like your lifestyle factors? Do you know, you've asked me something that's so interesting. You've, you've sparked something for me that I've never thought about before, which is that growing up, I was always like the smallest girl in the class and I always looked like much younger than everyone. And, you know, when you're 18 and you can't get into the cinema with your friends, it's so yeah. embarrassing and stuff like that. And I really my next... <laughs> Sweet. Um, my next door neighbour was a nurse and um, she 
for some reason, I guess she maybe experienced the same thing. I think I was complaining to her about, you know, people never believed how old I was. And she said, Tara, when you're 30 plus, you're going to love the fact that people don't think you're as old as you are. And for some reason, that's stuck in my brain. Um, so from the age of 30, I started this reverse aging, like diet and lifestyle thing. Um, so I think I probably, that seed probably was sown from the the opposite thing, which was that, you know, I wanted to look older when I was younger. And then um, you've also reminded me of something really funny, which is that I was in school, secondary school, high school, and I said to my teacher, when you take a paracetamol, how does it know which part of your body you've got pain in? Yeah, and rather than I, <laughs> I mean, for a child, you know, it's kind of like, it's that curious, geeky question. And she just looked at me and said, you're either going to be a scientist or a doctor when you grow up. Oh my gosh, how funny. Yeah, <laughs> and we're both. Yeah. That is such a you know kind of impressive question for a child to ask it's so funny I don't know like why I thought of that but you know then I, my PhD is in neuropharmacology so obviously yeah. I was really fascinated by that kind of thing from a young age I had like this predisposition to go <laughs> into studying neuroscience that is so funny actually but yeah I, I think one of the things and it's not so much like neuroscience but I think how our experiences as we're a child can shape our trajectory in our career path in life, um, I guess it's kind of related. Um, but yeah, I just always find um, how we end up doing what we do so fascinating. Yeah. I think that was such a great, no, li literally nobody's ever brought out those two stories for me before. And like I said, I was really fascinated to speak with you both because I find your angle like so different. And so it's also reminded me that my parents were um, like very Ayurvedic and like alternative. So as like I never had any antibiotics till I was 18 wow yeah like you know I sort of that was you know I mean obviously if I'd had to have things I would have had to and I remember one time I had a junior disparin and it was like a big deal in the household you know so it's so I grew up like very alternative but then I went to medical school so I feel like I have like a very big balance of those two things mm -hmm. as well which I know you know is something that that you're both interested in as well Definitely. Yeah. So let's get in to talking about the brain specifically. So what can we kind of be doing to support our brain health in terms of our behaviours as such? Because that kind of translates, doesn't it, into our cognitive thinking? Completely. And so I've got five basics for that. Um, but I think it's worth mentioning that it's part of this really interesting evolving field called epigenetics which is about the influence of the environment on your gene expression. Yeah. So although obviously we inherit genes from our parents, but these can either get switched on or not or switched off um, during our life. And that, as you said, relates strongly to some of our lifestyle factors. Um, so things like longevity, obesity, the likelihood to develop diabetes, um, even things like whether you're likely to stay in a long-term relationship or not are triggered by the lifestyle behaviours that switch on and off certain genes. So at the very basic level, it's that I speak about rest, fuel, hydrate, oxygenate and simplify. Um, rest is basically about overnight sleep. Um, I would call other forms of you know, recovery and resilience as a, a different type of rest. So it's about the sufficient length and good quality of your sleep overnight, um, which is super important for the brain 
because there's a cleansing system called the glymphatic system that flushes out toxins overnight. And they're the sorts of toxins that eventually lead to dementing diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's um, if those toxins build up. And then fuel, obviously, you're experts on. But um, so I, I really speak about it from the brain first point of view. There's lots of reasons that we eat. So it can just be physical health. It can be weight loss. It can be muscle building. You know, all, all sorts of things. Um, but I find it just so interesting that the brain's only two or three kilos. It's a tiny percentage of our body weight, but it eats up 25 to 30 percent of, mm -hmm. of what we eat. So so I think that's a good argument for saying that it should be considered quite highly in terms of your food choices. Um, hydration, which actually comes more from hydrating foods than drinking water. But, you know, it's sort of we also need, need to drink the water and um, I think it's such an easy thing for people to forget to do or not to value enough. But if you think about, and somebody else gave me this idea, I've always sort of, you know, talked about hydration, but somebody said, when my grandmother got all confused and collapsed at home, when the paramedics came, the first thing they did was um, put in a saline drip and rehydrate her. And the impact of just doing that was so astounding that it made me think of all those times that you said we should all drink, you know, enough water. Yeah. Um, so it is more extreme in the elderly, but for us, things like our focus and concentration and memory, you know, they are quite critically impacted by small levels of dehydration. Um, oxygenation is mostly about exercise and not being sedentary, but it's also about deep breathing. I'm sure in your clinics, you're seeing a lot of people doing shallow breathing and breath holding and jaw clenching now because of all the background stress. Mm -hmm. um, they're both nodding away for people that are just <laughs> listening. Um, so, you know, remembering to breathe deep, to breathe deeply to either to exhale longer than you inhale or just take 10 deep breaths before, a, you know, a Zoom meeting or a podcast recording. Um, and of course, to try to, you know, not default to being extremely sedentary when working from home and, and make sure you're still getting the steps that you would get if you were commuting like normal. And then simplification is two things. It's it's mindfulness in the sense of the word that, you know, most of us know about. But it's also about something called choice reduction, which I actually think has become really important during lockdown when it's so easy to get distracted and multitask mm -hmm. and have just so, you know, have household tasks, have work things to do if you're a parent and you've also got you know maybe homeschooling so it's about reducing the number of choices you naturally have in a day and the minimum way to do that is just to have a morning routine or to have like meal plans for the week or to have like a sort of formula for your wardrobe um that just you know simplifies all of those choices that we have to make which maybe we're not making more choices but they're different and sort of overwhelming because they're new during a you know new paradigm that we're in so those are the basics for me I find that quite difficult actually with what you said about having choices because when I know I've got like five things to do I honestly struggle and I'm like what do I do first what's more important and I in my head whilst I'm even working on one task in the back of my head I'm like I've still got all this stuff to do I find it really difficult to just you know write them down and then tick them off as I go along. I'm like constantly on overdrive. But if you do write them down, does that feeling reduce or not? It does. But sometimes I don't even write them down because I'm like, I know what I need to do because they're in my head. Yeah. But maybe I should try that more often. 
Totally. In your head is the worst thing because yeah. your brain wants to remind you of all your incomplete tasks. Yes. So it will keep bringing them to the front of your mind. So either writing it down or speaking it out loud gets it out of the brain body system. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I start my morning. I guess I don't really have so much of a morning routine except for like coffee. Um, that's <laughs> like habitual for me. Um, but I do actually start every morning with just writing down my to-do list for the day. So like I'll reflect back on yesterday's to-do list. What didn't I get to? And that'll be at the top of my to-do list. And then the other tasks that I need to do. Um, and I did kind of experiment with different like ways to do it where I had like daily tasks and weekly tasks. So it kind of was able to prioritize like what I needed to do today versus the rest of the week. But as a natural kind of I like to take things off. I'm a very much like get it done. It doesn't have to be perfect kind of person. Um, sometimes I feel like a to-do list can make me like rush through things because my personality type is like just get it done instead of like maybe taking that extra minute and making sure I didn't have any typos. I feel like I just found my mini me in life. I love it. <laughs> You're even more extreme than me. <laughs> I know. It's like a blessing and a curse. Like, I love to get things done, but I can, like, lack detail. Um, and, like, to-do lists are, like, they help me stay focused, but they also bring that, like, get-it-done mentality out of me. So, yeah, double-edged sword. Have um, you ever tried a mind map? So instead of a list that's just, like, unidimensional, have you tried, like, I just sometimes either put the date in the middle or if I've got a special, you know, sort of, theme I might write that in the middle and then I do all these little branches and I have stuff that relates to each other in one branch with all the twigs and then you can also use color um so that's like very exciting for somebody like you who loves taking off lists yeah I've never used mind maps for like to-do lists like we used to do them a lot in like uni for like studying and you know yeah looking at the kidneys and all the different functions and things like that that's like the first mind map that comes to life is the kidneys <laughs> in my head um but no I've never tried it I I will though that's a really great idea um and kind of reducing that need to get it done take off the list and kind of just seeing it more as a general things that need to be need to be done yeah I want to go back to the, the point you made about sleep because I am obsessed slash fascinated with sleep because it's just so important to overall well-being and I don't think people quite understand how essential it is for so many different reasons but um what you you kind of you mentioned um alzheimer's as well and maybe risk increasing if you do get lack of sleep consistently what are kind of like the other side effects to maybe not having a consistent good night's sleep or good quality sleep you know yeah no it's good it's good you um brought us back to that actually because obviously i focused only on the sort of brain and mental aspect of it and a much longer term aspect so um sleep is one of those things where you can never be in credit but you can always be in debit if you know what I mean yeah so you know you can have enough or not enough but you can't really say well I you've had too I, much or no, you've exactly had sort of, back on. <laughs> unfortunately not um I think it's really important to say like especially for women of our age that there does seem to be a protective effect of the hormones around pregnancy and childbirth and um, young child rearing. So obviously a lot of women respond to what we're about to talk about and say, oh my goodness, I'm obviously going to get Alzheimer's because I've got a young baby. But there's absolutely no evidence that women get Alzheimer's more than men. And it's still the case that women tend to be the main, you know, carer that's getting up at night and stuff like that. So that's the disclaimer from the start. (laughs) Um, 
But basically, we do all of our, um, you know, cell repair overnight. So just in terms of aging and resilience and, um, you know, specific organs like the brain and the kidney, there's a very, like, functional reason that we sleep. Um, I don't know if either of you have experienced this vivid dreaming that's been going on during lockdown. I haven't, but my partner has. Okay, I've, I've been having it and I, I just thought it was me. I, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, it's a, I didn't realise either, but it started for me at the beginning of lockdown and then I suddenly got quite a few journalists asking me about it. So I thought, oh, okay, it's not just me. So I looked into it and it was a global phenomenon during both the World Wars and the Holocaust. And now this is the next time that it's been a global phenomenon. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's very healthy emotional processing. So we dream to process our memories, our emotions. And the reason that it can be quite heightened for people at the moment is that there's unprecedented uncertainty around us. So what that does is it reminds you of the last time you felt like this, even if it obviously we haven't been in a global pandemic before, but you know, a really bad breakup or a job loss induces that same feeling of uncertainty and sort of, you know, anxiety. So people are often having dreams about something terrible happening to a loved one or, you know, their last breakup and things like that. But it's just because it's our brain is so clever at knitting together the emotions and memories with what we're experiencing at the moment. So don't be afraid if you're having that's actually really healthy. Um, and anyway, the rest of the time, you know, we need to dream for our psychological health. And we know that if you wake people up repeatedly, during different parts of the sleep cycle that it affects different types of memories um, being laid down. Mm-hmm. And then, so what happens short term is after one night's disrupted sleep, you operate with an apparent IQ loss of five to eight points. Now, oh, wow. you know, for most, <laughs> but for most people that wouldn't be noticeable during a, you know, a normal day, like you'd still get everything done. But, you know, if you had like a really high stakes meeting or you were like a professional sports person or something, you couldn't afford. Or like an exam. Yeah, an exam completely. Um, You wouldn't you wouldn't want that. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you actually lose a whole night's sleep. So because you mentioned exams, you know, some people cram the whole night before. Um, Previously, it was people on flights or, you know, mentioned young children or just being unwell yourself. Um, A whole night's sleep lost. The next day in population norm studies, you actually have a standard deviation drop in IQ, which would put all of us at below normal IQ. So it's like having a learning disability. And I've experienced that when I'm jet lagged that, you know, I I can tell that I just simply cannot remember things or respond to emails in the same way that I normally can. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are short term. And then with this sort of sleep debt that I mentioned, if you have four nights or more of not getting enough sleep, then you actually start to cause yourself some problems that you can't make up for by lying in at the weekend or sleeping for you know, more than nine hours at the weekend or whatever. So, you know, it really is very critical. And I think until really recently, until you know the research around this came out, a lot of people would say, why do we spend so much time sleeping? It's a waste of time. You know, there are even phrases like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And, you know, just, I know. I'm not my sort of people. <laughs> no, no, but like lots of high profile leaders and politicians saying, yeah. I only sleep four or five hours a night. And, mm. you know, inevitably that has an impact on people. It's not our kind of people at all, but it's it's definitely a lot of people that are out there. Yeah. 
so interesting I'm just so fascinated with sleep but like I said it is just so essential to our overall well-being yeah and I do remember like I read that book uh why we sleep by Matthew Walker I think one of the things that really stuck out to me when I read that was that you can't make up lost sleep which is something that you mentioned before like so if you have a really stressful week at work and you're kind of in sleep debt like you said sleeping it off at the weekend doesn't repair the loss and I think that's a mentality that not a lot of people understand they're like oh well you know, you're going on holiday soon and you can rest and you can make up all that lost sleep, but actually that doesn't work. And we need to find out how we can integrate better habits in our day-to-day life to improve our sleep quality. So it can improve our overall life and performance because we can't work to the bone and then get to a state of holiday where we're like, oh, I'll catch up on all that rest and sleep because it doesn't work like that. No, and that's why I specifically said when I mentioned rest at the beginning, I mean overnight sleep because napping can't make up for it either. I mean, napping is very good for you for different reasons, but it can't make up for overnight sleep. And I love how you said like, you know, little lifestyle habits, because what I tend to say to people is just go to bed half an hour earlier. Mm. That's really doable. You know, saying you need to be sleeping eight hours a night is not doable for a lot of people suddenly. Yeah. But go to bed half an hour earlier. Um, And then there are, you know, there were some statistics in Matthew's book that, I think are pretty shocking and I think that people should know so one is you know as a neuroscientist I say sleep seven to nine hours a night because the lymphatic system takes eight hours to clean your brain but actually Matthew showed that the difference between people who sleep eight hours and and more but not too much but you know enough and getting less than eight hours sleep is a threefold increase in your risk of cancer wow now remember what I said about epigenetics we all have you know inherited um, you know, potential diseases. So imagine you have a strong family history of, of breast cancer. Mm. If you consistently don't get eight hours of sleep per night, you're helping to switch on that gene that's more likely for it to express it than if you consistently slept for more than eight hours per night. And my um, breast consultant said to me, if you even look at your phone in the middle of the night to check what the time is, the effect of that light on your pineal gland increases your risk of cancer oh my god every time I get I always go to the toilet once in the night just because I drink so much water before bed and I yeah. always look at the time I need to stop doing that you need to stop doing that yeah. I'm that like you shouldn't look at the time because then you automatically think oh I only have like three more hours of sleep and like and you count down to like when your alarm clock goes off and it I don't know if this is like really actual or I just remember hearing it somewhere but it's it it can increase kind of that like anxiousness of like oh I have to make sure I get to sleep right now and that can delay the sleep Mm -hmm. checking it like is actually really detrimental not to just like the blue light but your your thought pattern of yeah to sleep yeah I mean psychologically I think we all know that's the case although it can be very tempting to look for whatever reason um but but now with the blue light thing and you know obviously now there are these like overnight settings for, to make the light more orange and everything but I think from from Barry's point there are just there are many reasons not to do it actually yeah. it's clearly it's clearly not good for you there's nobody out there saying actually the reason that it's a good thing to do is so true yeah. okay well thank goodness for this conversation today I'm going to stop doing that ASAP <laughs> I try to have a challenge do you remember we did have a try to charge our phones in the kitchen overnight so we didn't kind of wake up 
and check our phones, but I don't think either of us were very good at sticking to that. Um, okay, fab. I definitely learned something that I need to implement there. Um, I really want to get into kind of how our thoughts can impact the way we actually feel about ourselves, kind of, you know, whether or not it's how we look or how we feel in ourselves. Um, if you could talk through maybe some of the research, you know, or some of what, you know, you've found maybe even with clients of how kind of maybe negative thoughts or consistent negative thoughts impact our overall well-being. Yeah, I mean, in a way, that should be so obvious, but I haven't really heard many people specifically speaking about it, like, you know, you've raised this issue. And so, you know, actually in my book, which um, has the strapline, Open Your Mind, Change Your Life, it's all about how your thoughts affect everything in your life, your health, your happiness, the nature of your relationships, your, you know, wealth, and I don't mean just money by that, I mean, like, Mm. um, the sort of, like, you know, success and abundance in your life. So um, basically, this is to do with neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to change throughout life, which is great. But it's also the fact that if you're not that conscious about how moldable our brains are, then your brain is being shaped by outside influences or even your internal emotions or thoughts and subconscious beliefs, like you mentioned. So the beliefs that are embedded from a young age because they've been in your brain for longer just because of the passage of time, that correlates to having thicker neural pathways in your brain, which means that tends to be your default way of thinking or behaving or your habit. And so more psychologically or emotionally, the beliefs that you had growing up, the sort of, you know, the values, the boundaries, the, the roles, everything, they create the filters and perceptions through which you see life. So, you know, Sophie, you could have a twin sister that looks exactly the same as you, but for whatever reason, because of different narratives that you built up throughout your life, you could look in the mirror and feel very differently about the body that you see. Yeah. So it's almost quite interesting to think of yourself as your own twin because... That's so interesting. You know, because then you start, it, it's, it gives you one level of separation from how immersed you get in believing that what you think is completely true. Mm. And so... You know, I found over time that saying to myself and to my coaching clients, is that actually a fact when they make a statement is a really good beginning for a conversation because people, myself included, will say things like, oh, well, if that happens, then it means blah, blah, blah. But if you question yourself and say, is that actually a fact that if that thing happens, it inevitably means that, you know, this is the consequence. Most of the time, you know that that's not true. Mm -hmm. But you have to be at quite a high level of metacognition to be able to do that. So metacognition is thinking about your own thinking. Yeah. And that's why imagining yourself as your best friend or your, you know, your, your sibling is an easier way to do that. Um, and, you know, so, for example, you asked about some research. We know that women see their bodies differently throughout their hormonal cycle. Now, you could argue that at times I am more bloated or I am more, um, uh, you know, flushed flushed in the face or something like that. But but actually, the distortion caused by the hormones of what you see is not just physical. There's definitely a mental and emotional element where you see and hear things differently because of the levels of certain different hormones. And to make, you know, to take that one step of separation, that's always so helpful 
men are actually attracted to the same woman differently at different times of her cycle. Mm, I always find that so interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and equally, depending on the stage of your cycle that you're at, you are attracted to different types of men. So when we are um, fertile, in, in the you know middle of our cycle we're attracted to bad boys when we're at the um, other end of our cycle we're attracted to more like good husband type figures oh that's so interesting so I think for women there's a big hormonal influence on that but for everybody there's a big emotional influence on how you perceive things mm-hmm. so if for whatever reason you know whether it's the the background stress whether it's something that's going on in your life um, you're feeling fearful and mistrusting that actually physically alters your perception of what's going on in the world and how you see things and, you know, maybe even how you see your own body or your own face. So it's worth remembering that that's still valid because it's how you're feeling at the time, Mm. but you can question it and sort of try to even it out. And that's why I think, for example, journaling is so important for raising from subconscious to conscious, you know, what may be going on as a repeated pattern for you. Yeah. And as a specific example of what I think you were trying to get at is, you know, if your mother repeatedly said, you don't look good in red to Mm. you when you were a child, it's the emotional intensity of being criticised by a caring figure and the repetition of a statement has such a strong effect on the neuroplasticity of a child growing up that it's likely that you will later not like any red clothes, any red accessories, you'd never wear red lipstick, um you just grow an aversion to it mm-hmm. but if you if you're able to have therapy or coaching and really like unpick that you might be able to find out why sometimes it's so hidden that you can't actually find out why but if you at least know that there's something that's you know repeatedly happening you can make a choice about it so yeah I mean that field is so fascinating that there isn't really enough research in it because it's quite psychological yeah well, I remember when we were studying our masters, Barry and I together, and I don't know if you remember Barry, but our one of our professors, Paul, said that if you looked in the mirror every day and started like pinching bits of your skin and like telling yourself that, you know, you're too big or you don't really like how you look, then it was highly likely that you'll develop an eating disorder by just practicing that kind of negative self-talk. Yeah. I mean, that... that that's just that's so profound it's so upsetting isn't it to think yeah. that you, you know you can do that to yourselves and that people do but um and that's why I always say neuroplasticity is for good or bad if you repeatedly say to yourself you know I should be thinner I could be thinner I could be this I should be that I'm not this then that you know thoughts have a physical impact on the growth of your neurons and the pathways and that has an impact on all the hormones and neurotransmitters that affect your body yeah. Um, and if you were, it's, it's obvious, really, if you were brought up by, you know, parents that said you can do anything you want, you're beautiful, then that's the narrative that grows in, in mm. your neural architecture and you're more likely to repeat um, yeah. later in your life. Yeah, that kind of also reminds me, like, I really like that example. And I, I, I do remember that, but it, it's not something that kind of like stuck in my head, like when you said it. So if I remembered it, but I don't yeah. think I've thought about it since. Um but in the work that the company that I work for, it's more kind of um, the opposite where people, we do a lot of NLP training to kind of like identify like limiting beliefs. Um, and a lot of that is like what I heard um, 
And when I talk to people like, oh, I can't have chocolate in the house because, you know, I just always eat the mm-hmm. bar. Like, I, I'm not one of those people who can have just one square of chocolate. Like, mm-hmm. I just have to eat the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And the way you identify from your learned behaviors and your repetitive, you know, actions, it it, it does shape how you identify in the actions, like the self-fulfilling actions that you um, you have. And it's really about, you know, reflecting like you said, but being quite meta is a bit weird. So just having that person to, you know, coach you and bring out those reflective questions is so helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think journaling, if you don't have that person, like you said, is a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And let me know if you do this in a way as well, which is that I get people, so if people have a like a recurring negative thought, whether it's about their body or, or anything, I I sort of distill it down to, okay, what do you believe that backs up that thought and get them to the sort of lowest common denominator of the belief that underlies that. And then I get them to create like a mantra or a positive affirmation that's the opposite statement. So if it's, you know, I'll use a really like common generic one, I, I, I believe I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, you change it to I'm enough, I'm more than enough, I'm great, you know, and you repeat that um so basically you replace every negative thought with a positive thought. That's quite a Buddhist philosophy, but yeah. it's very backed up by neuroplasticity, which is that you can't undo something that's already wired into your brain, but you can overwrite it mm-hmm. by repeating something so much that it becomes a stronger pathway in your brain than the previous one. Interesting. So theoretically, say if someone has poor body image, if they were to look in the mirror every day and instead of saying, oh, I don't like my legs or I don't like this, I don't like that, they're like, you look amazing today you know you look so incredible you're beautiful and then they go off and they have their breakfast and they do whatever would that theoretically kind of increase um you know the neurons or whatever's going on in the brain um over time it would Sophie but I've had a lot of pushback from people who say I simply do not believe that that's true so I can't do it authentically Mm-hmm. So um, I have an exercise for this, which is so beautiful. And I haven't heard anybody say that it, it didn't work for them. So I think it's a better route to go down, which is I call it body gratitude, which is that either in the shower or like when you're moisturizing your body or just, you know, when you're like about to get into bed or something. So preferably naked, but not necessarily naked, that you go through every part of your body and you specifically thank it for something that it does for you. Oh my god, I love this idea. It's so good. And um, so, you know, when I first sort of thought of this idea, it was like your hair, your skin, your eyes, and it was very external, which was still a great feeling. Like it would make the difference for me between waking up in the morning and feeling like I don't need to wear a scrap of makeup and waking up in the morning thinking, oh, I should at least wear some concealer. Do you know what I mean? It makes that kind of difference where um, I remember once I did it last thing at night, I woke up in the morning. And you know, I was going to be seeing a lot of people. And I looked in the mirror and I thought, oh, I don't need to wear makeup today. And I said it to my friend and she was like, but that's because you did that exercise last night. And it sort of, you know, really created that connection in my brain. So I've adapted it during lockdown to also include the inside of your body. So to go through and say, I thank my brain for, you know, keeping me focused and motivated. Mm-hmm. I thank my lungs for breathing for me and staying resilient against COVID. I thank my, my guts for you know, I thank my gut bacteria for, you know, keeping my immunity strong and like my system regular. And, um, you know, skin is a really important one because it's psychologically skin is your boundary 
between mm-hmm. you and you know anything that's a psychological threat to you so um I thought you'd like it you know that it's more it's more than just an external sort of um yeah. vanity thing it can be very like empowering in terms of your immunity and your resilience as well yeah I think that's an incredible idea that like kind of combines a few things that I I've read up on and clued up about in the sense that like gratitude is really important and you know writing down gratitude statements can be really helpful to change the mindset but also like body scans and progressive muscle relaxation um and it kind of just like combines the two where we know body scans and uh pmr is great for helping you go to sleep and kind of turning you know you go through and you identify each part of the body and then you you know, turn it off and Headspace actually has a really nice walkthrough of that. Um, But then you also combine that with gratitude statements and it kind of like two birds with one stone kind of thing, but it's probably that much more powerful. Mm. I think that's amazing. I'll definitely start, you know. Yeah, please try it and let me know because I think it's so powerful. And for gratitude lists, I also had a similar journey, took longer because it happened like through my journaling for a year or so, is that again, at first it was very much my friends, my family, my ability to travel, Um, But then over time, it became more like my health, my resilience, my creativity. And that was a game changer for me. Once it was internal tools, the next time I came across a big challenge in life, I was like, I'm resilient. I can think of a way to get out of this because I'm really creative. You know, I, I brought very much to the front of my mind, like more internal things than just because like your friends and family can get taken away from you. And, and, you know, something like COVID has brought that home very clearly. So if if your gratitude list is all about things like that, not innate things, you're still quite vulnerable. Mm. But once it becomes about more innate things, it it's actually like a tool for you to use during adversity. Um, and you've cultivated that in the meantime. So I think those things like going, you know, people, people have said like you can't go out, go inwards. And it's a bit trite when it's just said like that. But actually discussing this with you makes me think. Um, I've been doing it for a while longer than than lockdown, but it really does make a very profound difference to your whole ability to navigate life. Yeah, amazing. Are there any other kind of small practices that we can be doing to kind of enhance or increase our brain's resilience? Yes, yeah, so actually, Barry reminded me that I um, I on Instagram released a 14 day series of short meditations, which include a body scan, a gratitude list, the body gratitude exercise um, and lots of other things. You know, some of them were specific to anger or forgiveness or empathy. So um, hopefully I've you know put everything together there in a way that's really digestible. Um, another thing that kept coming into my mind as we were speaking is all the exercises that we've talked about but if I'm really stuck I do this exercise that I called creative mentoring and you can do it like where you have a question on your mind and you think of three people that you really admire they can be real people or you know fictional characters or famous people and you call them into a room one by one and you really like imagine them there and you ask them the question and then you say out their answer but the one that I've found that's so is the best one and it's just in one step and it literally makes you cry when you do it is yourself in seven years time oh wow so you have a question you imagine yourself in seven years time you say you know I'm this age I look like this blah 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 and ask the question take seven steps forward and turn around so that you're then yourself in seven years time answering yourself 
and answer the question. And it's just, it's making me emotional even saying it because I know that, you know, if you really surrender to that and you and it's quite meta and you let yourself tell you what you'd say to the person you love most in the whole world, mm. it's so much nicer than what we say to ourselves every day about what we should be doing and, you know, how we've not been perfect and, you know, all the sorts of things like that. So that's a really nice one too and it's it's very easy to do actually but you've got to really like get yourself into it yeah that's, that, that honestly sounds so powerful yeah definitely gonna try that one and um, one more question before we go on to questions from uh followers but do you think that scrolling through social media can impact how we feel about ourselves well there's a lot of research that shows that it does yeah. so um most of the research is done in like teenagers and so we see women more than men, but including, you know, boys or men, mm-hmm. that the more times a day you look at social media, the more likely you are to have a body dysmorphic disorder or an eating disorder. Wow. And, you know, I think obviously brains at that age are more impressionable. So it's less obvious than that as you get older, but it can turn into things like social anxiety, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of negative comparison. And the latest thing that I was asked to speak about actually yesterday is what's called tech apnea so you know sleep apnea is when you like um sort of either hold your breath or stop breathing briefly in the middle of the night and then usually you take a big gasp or the you know the person does a big snort um tech apnea is when in anticipation of likes or followers or comments or you know something you hold your breath well you inhale you reach for your phone you start scrolling and you forget to breathe out. Jeez. Yeah. Crazy. So so people are breath holding um, or shallow breathing, which I mentioned earlier, which is a very ancient response to a threat. You know, if you have to run away from a tiger, mm. you have to breathe rapid and shallow. So people tend to do, to, to do that. But then, you know, if you get a positive experience on social media, then that can also activate your system into fight, fright, flight. Um, or you know it can lead to disappointment and and like I said the comparison thing it's interesting what we've talked about mostly today is like the voice in our own head that says things yeah. to us but you know and that's bad enough but then if you get lots of evidence from outside yeah to, to back that up then it's even worse exactly yeah people who spend more time on their phones scrolling need to do more internal work on res- increasing their resilience and you know more gratitudes or breath work or meditation and things like that absolutely that but I'm also a big believer in curating your feed so that it's actually positively boosting your brain rather than me yeah you know sort of like we said about neuroplasticity it can be good or bad well your feed is created by you it's not forced on well mostly it's not you know imposed Mm -hmm. by someone else so there's a lot that you can do to make sure that when you go onto Instagram or you know Twitter or Facebook that you're more likely to come away from it actually feeling better about yourself than feeling worse about yourself and and then you know other practical things like where I mentioned choice reduction that can also include like limiting the amount of time that you have your phone available or you know certain apps that you look at at certain times and things like that. Mm, So interesting so actually the questions that we have are quite relevant to what we've just said so someone's asked how can we maintain a positive body image without comparing our bodies to other people on social media? I mean, <laughs> the thing <laughs> about that question to answer. Well, 
Yeah, it's quite very complex. But the thing about that is that it just astounds me that most people know that what they're putting out on social media is the best, you know, own, you know, sort of the best version of, of real life and maybe even a slightly fake version of real life. Mm. But somehow we all believe that everybody else is putting their whole life out there and that it's all true. Yeah. And so obviously their whole life is perfect and, and only we know the truth, but, you know, that ours isn't always like that. And we, yeah. so we compare our reality to something that we know isn't the reality because we don't put everything in our lives on Instagram all the time. Yeah. Um, so that's the basics. But then, you know, there may be certain issues that you are seeing people um, and you do aspire aspire to be like them. So I think it really comes back to what Barry said, which is, you know, the journaling, the gratitude work, the meditation, the breath work. Um, and then if there's something specific that, you know, for health as well as um, aesthetic reasons that you really need to change about your body, then do the hard work that you need to do to make that happen. Yeah. Um, rather than sort of just looking at people who have already achieved that and thinking that it was so easy. I mean, for some people it may have been, but for most people it's it's consistent hard work that creates you know, the tone and the yeah. um, the shape that, that people want. Exactly. It kind of annoys me when, you know, people are like, oh, I don't have time to do that or practice that. And I'm like, well, make time. You know, if it's that important, you feel like it's going to benefit you so much, then prioritise it. Mm. Yeah. But, but again, like we said earlier, micro tweaks. So start off with a thousand extra steps a day, half an hour to bed earlier an extra glass of water a day and build it up from there don't say okay I'm suddenly going to start doing 150 minutes of exercise a week because that's you're more like you're likely you'll fail and then feel terrible about yourself and like create another vicious circle so just build it up with micro good lifestyle behaviors yeah small habits make bigger shifts mm. I don't know if that's the right metaphor but yes <laughs> if you made that up you should coin that <laughs> phrase it's really good <laughs> I don't think I made it up at all, but yeah, I heard it somewhere, but yeah, it fits well, but yeah, um, build it up over time. Habit stacking is another thing uh, James Clare talks about in his book, Atomic Habits. I think we've mentioned that a few times in this podcast now. I love it, but um, yeah, small things lead to bigger changes. Yeah, definitely. I think we've actually covered most of the other questions that someone has asked. Um, I'm naturally a pessimist. Um, what can I do to start thinking more positively? That's such a limiting belief. I'm naturally <laughs> a pessimist. I was, I was actually thinking about what you said about I'm not the kind of person that can have a bar of chocolate at home. But let's let's normalise that for, for her or him and everyone. We are all naturally pessimists, if that's the phrase that you want to use, only because for survival reasons, the natural gearing of the brain is psychologically twice as um, concerned with potential loss than it is with the same reward yeah. and so in my book you know a major part of my book was about abundant thinking this is something that we can work on and grow because of the power of neuroplasticity and it's simply not the case that you know Sophie and Barry are really like optimistic and I'm a pessimistic person by nature um, Anybody, especially you know, under pressure, will default to that because that's a survival mechanism. When you're feeling your best, really cultivate the resilience, the positive thinking, the abundance, and you'll find that the next time you're not feeling your best, it's a little bit easier to turn that thinking around. Now, there's another exercise 
a really quick one, which is where you think of a memory of yourself, like feeling really negative and pessimistic. You immerse yourself in that memory for one minute, timed on your phone or something. And then you write notes in these four categories on how that felt. So physically in your body, mentally in your thoughts, emotionally in your feelings and spiritually, like in your spirit and in your integrity. Mm-hmm. You then recall a time that you were at your best, most positive, optimistic, abundant, and you immerse yourself in that memory for a minute. And at the end of the minute, you write down the same four categories, how it felt in your body, your thoughts, your emotions and your spirit. And there's absolutely no right or wrong answer here. They can be completely different or like completely the same or one box can be different. For me, what I learned that was really useful was the one that was the most different was physical. So if I'm feeling really positive, you know, I put my shoulders back, I put my chin up, I make eye contact, I smile. If I'm feeling really negative, I'm more likely to like hunch over a bit, not really make eye contact with people, definitely not smile. And it's too difficult to mentally get yourself out of the negative thinking. But if you force your shoulders back, you look up, you smile, there's a knock on effect with the mental, emotional and spiritual things. It's like the power pose, like before you go to an interview um, or in Grey's Anatomy, they do it before they go into surgery. You just stand really tall with your hands on your waist and you kind of look like a superhero. Um, And yeah, and then it gives you that kind of like, like you said, it has a knock on effect to the different choices. Actually, that could answer the question about um, when I look in the mirror or if I look at other people on social media that I feel. So like, as soon as you said that, I was like, I'm Wonder Woman, because I've done it so (laughs) many times that I know as soon as I do it, I completely feel like Wonder Woman. And I just like have this vision of, of how I see myself like, you know totally at my best kind of thing yeah amazing I feel like I need to re-listen to this episode and take notes like I've learned so much we did cover a lot you two really like got the best out of me thank you so much oh thank you no honestly thank you so much for coming on I think this is one of my favorite podcast episodes (laughs) one of the ones that I'll have to like force all my friends and family to listen yes definitely Um, Um, before we wrap up do you want to let everyone know where we can find you oh thank you so um i am dr tara swart on instagram dr tara swart um my website taraswart.com and my book's available on amazon it's called the source open your mind change your life in the uk and the source the secrets of the universe the science of the brain in the us amazing we're gonna do we're gonna link all of that in the show notes brilliant thank you well thank you so much um if everyone could please rate review and subscribe make sure you follow us on instagram at forking wellness and if you have any extra questions um definitely submit them and we'll pass them on to tara yeah thanks thank you tara and thank you everyone for listening thank you bye bye